Hello and welcome to Alice is Everywhere, the only podcast devoted entirely to Alice in Wonderland and her creator, Lewis Carroll. My name is Heather, and today we are going to read the second half of Beatrice Hatch's obituary of Lewis Carroll. If you have just tuned in out of the blue... You probably want to rewind one episode and hear part one, or maybe you want to keep it right here because Beatrice is about to tell us exactly what it was like to spend an evening as a dinner guest of Charles Dodson, otherwise known as Lewis Carroll. So fun! This obituary slash first-hand account from a former child friend of Lewis Carroll's was published in the Strand magazine in 1898. If you are wondering about Lewis Carroll's death in January of that year... He died from a run-of-the-mill bronchial infection. Some accounts call it bronchitis, some call it pneumonia, some call it the flu. Basically, his lungs had some sort of infection, and if he could have just held on, say, three decades or so until the discovery of penicillin, he would have been just fine. But alas, it was not to be, and he went to his final resting place on January 14th, 1898. He died at the house called the Chestnuts that he leased for his sisters in Guildford, which was and is 60 or 70 miles from Oxford, where his primary residence was. But enough about the end. Let's flash back to when he was very much alive in the probably early 1870s and see what's going on then. Beatrice, if you went to see Mr. Dotson in the morning, you would find him, pen in hand, hard at work on neat packets of manuscript carefully arranged around him on the table. But the pen would instantly be laid aside, and the most cheerful of smiles would welcome you in for a chat as long as he liked to stay. He was always full of interest and generally had something fresh to show, an ingenious invention of his own for filing papers or lighting gas or boiling a kettle. My earliest recollections of Mr. Dodson are connected with photography. He was very fond of this art at one time, though he had entirely given it up for many years latterly. He kept various costumes and properties with which to dress us up, and of course that added to the fun. What child would not thoroughly enjoy personating a Japanese, or a beggar child, or a gypsy, or an Indian? Several of these are reproduced in this article. Sometimes there were excursions onto the roof of the college, which was easily accessible from the windows of the studio. Or you might stand by your tall friend's side in the tiny dark room and watch him while he poured the contents of several little, strong-smelling bottles onto the glass picture of yourself that looks so funny with its black face. And when you grew tired of this, there were many delights to be found in the cupboards in the big room downstairs. Musical boxes of different colors and different tunes, the dear old woolly bear that walked when he was wound up, toys, picture books, and packets of photographs of other children who had also enjoyed those mornings of bliss. The following letter, written to me in 1873, about a large wax doll that Mr. Dodson had presented to me, and which I had left behind me when I went on a visit from home, is an interesting specimen. The first page is here reproduced in reduced facsimile. Emily and Mabel were other dolls of mine, and known also by him, but they have long since departed this life. I need hardly to say I still possess the doll, Alice. My dear Bertie, I met her just outside Tom Gate, walking very stiffly, and I think she was trying to find her way to my rooms. So I said, why have you come here without Bertie? So she said, Bertie's gone, and Emily's gone, and Mabel isn't kind to me and two little waxy tears came running down her cheeks. Why, how stupid of me. I've never told you who it was all the time. It was your new doll. I was very glad to see her, and I took her up to my room and gave her some Vesta matches to eat and a cup of nice melted wax to drink, for the poor little thing was very hungry and thirsty after her long walk. So I said, come and sit down by the fire, and let's have a comfortable chat. Oh, no, no, she said. 
I'd much rather not. You know I do melt so very easily. And she made me take her quite to the other side of the room, where it was very cold, and then she sat on my knee and fanned herself with a pen wiper, because she was afraid the end of her nose was beginning to melt. You've no idea how careful we have to be, we dolls, she said. Why, there was a sister of mine. Would you believe it? She went up to the fire to warm her hands, and one of her hands dropped right off. There, now. Of course it dropped right off, I said, because it was the right hand. And how do you know it was the right hand, Mr. Carroll, the doll said. So I said, I think it must have been the right hand, because the other hand was left. The doll said, I shan't laugh. It's a very bad joke. Why, even a common wooden doll could make a better joke than that. And besides, I've made my mouth so stiff and hard that I can't laugh, if I try ever so much. Don't be cross about it, I said, but tell me this. I'm going to give Bertie and the other children one photograph each, whichever they choose. Which do you think Bertie will choose? I don't know, said the doll. You'd better ask her. So I took her home in a handsome cab. Which would you like, do you think? Arthur is Cupid? Or Arthur and Wilfred together? Or are you and Ethel as beggar children? Or Ethel sitting on a box? Or one of yourself? Your affectionate friend, Lewis Carroll. Mr. Dotson's chief form of entertaining during the last years of his life was giving dinner parties. Do not misunderstand me, nor picture to yourself a long row of guests on either side of a gaily decorated table. Mr. Dotson's theory was that it was much more enjoyable to have your friends singly. Consequently, these dinner parties, as he liked to call them, consisted almost always of one guest only, and that one a child friend. One of his charming and characteristic little notes, written in his clear writing, often on a half-sheet of note-paper and signed with the CLD monogram, which, as seen in the facsimile, began at the wrong end, would arrive containing an invitation, of which the following is a specimen. November 21, 1896. My dear B, the reason I have, for so long a time, not visited the hive is a logical one, but it is not, as you might imagine, that I think there is no more honey in it. Will you come again to dine with me? Any day would suit me, and I would fetch you at 6.30. Ever your affectionate CLD. Let us suppose that this invitation has been accepted, and come with me to see the rooms in Christ Church, where Mr. Dodson has lived and worked for more than 40 years. After turning in at the door of number 7 staircase, and mounting a rather steep and winding stair, we find ourselves outside a heavy black door of somewhat prison-like appearance, over which is painted the Reverend C.L. Dodson. Then a passage then a door with glass panels, and at last we reach the familiar room that we love so well. It is large and lofty, and extremely cheerful-looking. All round the walls are bookcases, and under them the cupboards of which I have spoken, and which we even now long to see opened, that they may pour out their treasures. Opposite to the big window, with its cushioned seats, is the fireplace, and this is worthy of some notice on account of the lovely red tiles, which represent the story of the hunting of the snark. Over the mantelpiece hang three painted portraits of child friends, the one in the middle being a picture of a little girl in a blue coat and cap, who is carrying a pair of skates. But the room is a study and not a drawing room, and the big tables and the tall reading desks bear evidence to the genuine work that is done there. Mr. Dotson seats his guest in a corner of the red sofa in front of the fireplace, and the few minutes before dinner are occupied with anecdotes about other child friends small or grown up, or anything particular that has happened to himself, such as more applications from interviewers, collectors of autographs, and other persecutors, all of whom were a special abhorrence of his. The requests of such people were never granted. Mr. Dodson had a great horror of being lionized, and ingeniously silenced his tormentors by representing to them, indirectly, that Lewis Carroll, the author of Alice, and Mr. Dodson were two distinct persons. 
The latter had never put his name to any published work of fiction, and Lewis Carroll was not to be found at Christ Church, Oxford. Dinner is served in a smaller room, which is also filled with bookcases and books. But we will imagine the repast concluded, for those who have had the privilege of enjoying a college dinner need not to be told how excellent it is, and we must not rouse envy in those who have not. The rest of the evening slips away very quickly. There's so much to be done and to be shown. You may play a game, one of Mr. Dodson's own inventions, such as Mishmash, Landrick, or others, or you may see pictures, lovely drawings of fairies, whom your host tells you can't be sure don't really exist, or you may have music if you wish it, and Mr. Dodson will himself perform. You look round, supposing you are a stranger for the piano. There is none, but a large square box is brought forward, and this contains an organette. Another box holds the tunes, circular perforated cards, all carefully catalogued by their owner. One of the greatest favorites is Santa Lucia, and this will open the concert. The handle is affixed through a hole in the side of the box, and the green baize lining of the latter helps to modulate the sound. The picture of the author of Alice, keenly enjoying every note as he solemnly turns the handle and raises or closes the lid of the box to vary the sound, is more worthy of your delight than the music itself. Never was there a more delightful host for a dinner party, or one who took such pains for your entertainment, fresh and interesting to the last. Sometimes I have spent an evening with Mr. Dotson in conversation only. With all his humor, he took a serious view of life, and had a very grave vein running through his mind. The simplicity of his faith, his deep reverence, and his childlike trust in the goodness of God were very striking. His look of surprise and gentle reassurance to a girl who told him she was nervous when she traveled by rail, fearing an accident, come into my mind as I write, But surely you trust God? Do you think he would let you come to harm? To be afraid is to distrust. These and other similar words of his give us an insight into the pure and open mind in whose clear waters heaven's sunshine can find an unsullied reflection. Mr. Dotson did not often preach, yet when he did he had the power to impress and captivate his hearers. There was no need for him to write out a sermon. Full of earnestness in his subject, the words came without difficulty. Neither was there any danger of his wandering from the direct point, for before the eye of his orderly and logical mind, his subject would arise in the form of a diagram to be worked out point by point. And he has told me how, by keeping a seemingly real drawing of this before him as he looked straight in front of him from the pulpit, he kept his headings perfectly clear and distinct. For the last few years, he lived a life of great retirement, declining all invitations into society and seldom associating with anyone beyond dining in the hall. If you were very anxious to get him to come to your house on any particular day, the only chance was not to invite him, but only to inform him that you would be at home. Otherwise, he would say, As you have invited me, I can't come, for I have made a rule to decline all invitations but I will come the next day. However, his frequent informal calls more than made up for this. In former years, he would sometimes consent to go to a party if he was quite sure that he was not to be shown off or introduced to anyone as the author of Alice. I must again quote from a note of his in answer to an invitation to tea. What an awful proposition! To drink tea from four to six would tax the Constitution, even of a hardened tea drinker. For me, who hardly ever touches it, it would probably be fatal. One form in which Mr. Dodson took his recreation was by going to the theater, and with his strict views of morality and refined taste, he was able many a time to induce stage managers to correct or omit anything that might jar on sensitive ears. Of course, the plays that he cared to go to were very limited in number. 
He particularly enjoys seeing children act, and many a little actress would receive a note or a card, accompanied by a copy of one of his books, handed in at the stage door the morning after the performance. And this was often the beginning of much kindness shown to her and a true friendship. I do not know that he ever wrote anything in the dramatic line, though he did once favor us years ago with a tiny prologue for our own special use at some private theatricals which our elders were to perform. The prologue, given in facsimile on the preceding page, was to be spoken by myself and by my small brother. Prologue. Enter Beatrice, leading Wilfred. She leaves him at center, and after going round on tiptoe to make sure they are not overheard, returns and takes his arm. Wilfie, I'm sure that something is the matter. All day there's been, oh, such a fuss and a clatter. Mama's been trying on a funny dress. I never saw the house in such a mess. Puts her arm around his neck. Is there a secret, Wilfie? Uh, Wilfie, shaking her off. Yes, of course. Beatrice, and you won't tell it? Whispers, then you're very cross. Turns away from and clasps her hands, looking up ecstatically. I'm sure of this. It's something quite uncommon. Wilfred, stretching up his arms with a mock heroic air. Oh, curiosity, thy name is woman. Puts his arm round her coaxingly. Well, Bertie, then I'll tell, mysteriously. What should you say if they were going to act a little play? Beatrice, jumping and clapping her hands. I'd say how nice. Wilfred, pointing to audience. But will it please the rest? Beatrice, oh yes, because you know they'll do their best turns to audience. You'll praise them, won't you, when you've seen the play? Just say how nice before you go away. They run away hand in hand. February 14th, 1873. All these things belong now to the past, and we must open a new chapter in our lives in which that well-known figure will not appear, but the benefaction which he bestowed upon the world is still with us. The benefaction of a wit that was never sarcastic, a humor that was always sympathetic, and the embodiment in himself of the three essentials of life. Faith, the light by which to live, hope, the goal for which to labor, charity, the wide horizon, to which his soul looked out in love. Okay, I am so sorry I couldn't hold it together there for the dramatic prologue. I almost didn't read it because I, it's just so ridiculous and, and dare I say treacly. But Beatrice saved it for last. She relays that and then she ends the whole obituary rather abruptly. So it must have been important to her. So I included it out of respect for Beatrice, but my giggling the whole way through it probably wasn't very respectful. Some other initial impressions. I was surprised that he signed his letter Lewis Carroll. If he was so hot pants to keep his public and private personas separate, which Beatrice tells us he was, and I've read that in a multitude of other places, including his own diary, I would think he would sign all his letters Charles Dodson. But, you know, maybe if you're in the real inner circle, like the Hatches were, he, he would use the names interchangeably. I was also surprised to hear her say the university dinners were good. Since Charles Dodson had such a legendarily austere diet, maybe he ordered up something special for the kids when they were over. I don't know. I was really impressed by the writing style of Beatrice Hatch, weren't you? Obviously a very educated woman who really paints a picture with her words. As always, it's easy to judge someone from the past through our modern eyes. But let's not be too hard on Beats when she says things like, what child wouldn't enjoy personating a Japanese? As someone living in the year 2017, your first thought might be, oh, I don't know, Beatrice, maybe a Japanese person 
wouldn't be quite so delighted by that idea. Maybe a gypsy wouldn't find it quirky and fun that you're dressing like a gypsy. Except for the errant Halloween costume, we've generally given up on dressing up like an entire race or nationality in this day and age. But remember, the world was a lot bigger back then in Victorian times. You couldn't hop on a plane and fly to Asia. You couldn't pop in a documentary to learn about other cultures. So any ideas or images of Japan would have come from newspapers or magazines. And it must have all seemed incredibly exotic, just like England would be exotic to the Japanese, right? For all we know, there were Japanese children dressing up like little English girls for photographs in the late 1800s. So don't be too hard on Beatrice for her worldview. Now, there is an addendum to Beatrice's article that describes something that was going to be done as a tribute to Mr. Carroll. I'm going to read it for you now because regular listeners of this podcast should recognize some of these names. Many of Mr. Dodson's friends are anxious that something special should be done to honor the memory of one who did so much for others, and to whom so many thousands of people owe a debt of gratitude for his gift to the world of the immortal Alice. A scheme has therefore been organized to collect subscriptions for the endowment of a cot in the Children's Hospital, Great Ormond Street, which shall be called the Alice in Wonderland Cot. This cot should be intended specially to benefit children connected with the theatrical profession in whom Mr. Dotson always showed great interest. The scheme is warmly supported by Her Royal Highness the Duchess of Albany, the Duke of Fife, and Her Royal Highness the Duchess of Fife. Among the names on the general committee are those of the Bishop of Oxford, the Dean of Durham, Dr. George MacDonald, Sir Henry Irving, Mrs. Little, Mrs. Reginald Hargreaves, the original Alice, and other old friends of Lewis Carroll. Also, those who were connected with him in his work as Mr. Frederick Macmillan, Sir John Tenniel, and others. All readers of Alice, old and young, are invited to contribute, and subscriptions will be received and acknowledged by the Honorable Treasurer J.T. Black Esquire, Soho Square, the Honorable Secretaries Mrs. Herbert Fuller, 31 Palace Court, London, and Miss Beatrice Hatch, Christchurch, Oxford, and the London and County Bank and its branches. Sorry, I was really struggling there. As I mentioned on part one of this podcast, I did a very poor job of photographing this article, so I'm kind of struggling to read it. Am I the only one that finds it weird that the hospital bed is only for kids in the dramatic arts? (laughs) Am I misunderstanding that? How many sick little actors can there be at any given time? Guys, this was episode 41 of Alice is Everywhere, if anyone's counting. I honestly haven't decided yet what will be the topic of our next episode, but I better make it a good one, because as we've discussed before, all signs point to 42 being Lewis Carroll's favorite number. In retrospect, I probably should have saved that discussion for episode 42. Until episode 42, keep up with all the latest on our girl Alice on the Alice is Everywhere website, Facebook page, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. And be sure to tell your friends about all the fun we're having here. Talk soon!